Welcome to Bootstrappers, a program designed to bring you up-to-the-minute ideas and concepts to understand what it takes to succeed in business and life. Each week, we'll bring you guests and ideas you can't find anywhere else. Bootstrappers is a production of Anaquim LLC. Now strap on those business boots and join Bootstrappers with Jeremy and Gwen Aspen. Welcome to this episode of Bootstrappers. I'm your host, Jeremy Aspen. I'm here with my lovely spouse, uh, Gwen Aspen. She's the president of Anaquim. I'm the president of Wistar Group. We are both hosts of this show, Bootstrappers, uh, where we talk to successful entrepreneurs. We talk to thought leaders, community leaders about what they have uh, learned uh, during their tenure, the trials and tribulations that they've suffered from running organizations, and we help to apply it to industry, generally speaking, and to life. The concepts and the tips that are shared on Bootstrappers apply to anybody starting a business, working at a business, or aspiring entrepreneurs. So, let's get hungry. Let's break some things. Let's strap. No, let's lace up. <laughs> lace up. Let's lace up. We're those lacing business up those boots. business We're boots. not strapping them on anymore. <laughs> and this is Bootstrappers. <laughs> Today, we are here with. Congressman Don Bacon. Don Bacon uh, is uh, Nebraska, the Congressman of Nebraska's second district. He served, he does serve on the uh, Armed Services and the Agri Agricultural Committees in the U.S. Congress and was first elected in 2016. Prior to his service in Congress, he was a Brigadier General in the Air Force, functionally managing, get the 25,000 Air Force Intelligence personnel. He was commander at Offutt Air Force Base, a uh, place that people here in Omaha are gonna recognize pretty quickly. And uh, uh, Congressman Bacon has a master's degree from the National War College in National Strategy. That is I cool. know, that was so, when I read that, I was like, holy crap, that's, that's going on the fascinating. Intro. Uh, so welcome to the show, uh, Congressman Bacon. Thank you, Jeremy, thank you, Gwen. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Um, uh, just so our, for our viewers and our listeners, we are not uh, going to talk about politics with uh, Congressman Bacon. We're going to refer to his life as a general because as it applies to uh, industry, um, being a general, in my humble opinion, is probably the coolest friggin' title in the right? world. Definitely. I mean, like when you're, when you're a kid and you're, you're, we were playing back then with the plastic uh, army men. <laughs> I did too. Yeah. You, you Everybody wanted to, be, wanted to be the general. Everyone wanted to be the general because it's so yeah. cool. I mean, um, and, and so what we want to derive from a conversation with a uh, retired general uh, who happens to be a congressman, yes, but is the way that leadership operates in a structured environment like the Air Force, like the Coast Guard and any of the other branches. And can we just say our U.S. military is, I want to say, be, I want to say badass. badass. Yeah, so that, <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. We can cuss on this US, show. We'll cut our it U.S. Off. military is freaking incredible. So if we want to learn something about leadership, I feel like we're going to the best right now. So I wonder, um, uh, Congressman, is, can, can you just give us a little bit, uh, just for our listeners that are not here in Omaha or in the second district, uh, a little bit about who you are and how you became uh, ultimately a little bit about how you became general. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, from, uh, you know, high school and getting into the military and whatnot. Well, you know, I was a farm kid. So I was baling hay, corn and soybeans. We had beef cattle. Uh, my first job was scooping manure. So that's a good start in life, I guess. Yeah. You know, where, uh, I can always go back to that if I have to. <laughs> but uh, I was a farm kid and my grandmother, who <clears throat> was my neighbor, uh, you know, gave me some books on World War II and I loved them. So I just, I read them like 10 times. And I, so I started reading a lot of war history. So I developed an interest in this, uh, but I never thought I'd join the military. Frankly, it was in the seventies. People had longer hair. I had longer hair. I don't, I didn't like black plastic shoes, you know, all this stuff. So I, I never saw myself being in the military, but I loved reading about it. Uh, so I went off to college. Uh, I interned for a congressman. Uh, you know, when I was in college, I was oh. also, as a political activist, I campaigned for Ronald Reagan at the age of 13. So wow, like, that's amazing. A little bit about me. Yeah, so that's I, cool. I was really my, those are my interests. I love military history. I love doing politics. And I had a dirt bike. And that was, that was that's sort of my childhood right there. <laughs> like BMX yeah. or motorcycle? Look, motorcycle. I had, I had a, a dirt bike, a Honda dirt bike. Nice. And I've been riding, I got a bike today. I, I've, I've, you can't get the bike out of me. It's in my oh, DNA. that's cool. <laughs> that's awesome. So, that's awesome. I can picture it. Um, but, you so, know, I was, 
I actually took classes at ROTC and I did not like the uniform, but I loved the material. Mm. And so after I graduated, I had a, a Christian counselor say me, Don, what's your plan? And I said, well, I want to join, I, well, I want to be a businessman like my dad. He goes, Don, you got a book in here. What is this, like an Eisenhower book? So he says, you were about to join the military. And I never really even thought about it, though I loved it. And, and that, that conversation got me to sign up at 21 years old. Oh, wow. Oh, you, so you went in relatively late. Yeah, I went in after college. Okay, so, and so you went in ROTC, you're an officer, uh, just from the- It was an OTS, they called it 90-Day Wonder. Oh, really? Like, That's how that, okay. 90-Day Wonder Boot Camp. And so I, then, my entire, I was number one in my class in demerits. Well, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> what were, your, for were you. you late a lot or what was the demerit situation? Well, about? this is uh, <laughs> the things that not just you want to brag about in these situations. I, so I was really good on the academic stuff and the history, but I, had, I, we were, I never had to make a bed. I didn't iron stuff, you know, girl, I, I didn't have to iron. So I was a farm kid. So I knew how to work hard, uh, but here's my first day. OT bacon. I go, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yes, sir. No, sir. And I go, <laughs> I go, okay. okay. <laughs> that was you got some work today. <laughs> I, I, so I, they had to get me, I had to take a little while to oh, get the awesome. military bearing in me. And that's uh, <laughs> the truth of it. Uh, that's, that's awesome. The, um, Okay, so you're starting off as an OT, uh, you're not even an officer yet, but um, to get to Brigadier General uh, obviously takes some discipline, and I guess that should be one part of the question, like what does it take, but also at what point in a career do you understand that you're being groomed to become a general? Like is it uh, right. when you're a major or when you're a captain? Like at what point do you, do you, do you recognize that they're trying to bestow upon you and honor like leadership as a general? In the end, you know, about one out of 300 or so make general. That's about what it is, somewhere in there. And so you sort of know if you're being competitive, if you, if, like as a company grade officer, as a lieutenant and captain, major, you know, I end up, if you're like a top graduate at a few of your schools, which I was uh, later, I was, I didn't, I graduated, I ended up being number one in other schools, but not for demerits. Uh, <laughs> for doing better, uh, in the good way, not the, not the bad way. Mm -hmm. But also, if you get awarded, when you got commanders saying, this is my best officer out of 300 or whatever, you start being separated out as, and it, and it can't just be a one-time deal. You got to have a continued uh, succession of things that really stand you out as, a, as an officer. And so, what you, what you really start knowing, only 3% of a year group gets promoted early. So 3% okay. to major, to lieutenant colonel, to colonel. And if you get promoted twice in that top 3%, it's going to put you in that a small pool where you're being looked at for uh, senior command and general. So I was promoted early to lieutenant colonel and colonel, uh, and it gave me a chance to command a flying two flying squadrons. And out, out of both of those, I was rated the number one out of, like my one rated number one of 31 squadron commanders. So Part of it is you got to be set apart, and so whether it's scholastically, which I was in some schools, uh, and then it, it all comes down to if you're getting promoted early, uh, you are you've you're competing. It already shows you in the top three percent. You do it twice, it puts you in a smaller pool. Uh, you can't become a general unless you've had a joint job, which I had one in Iraq, and you have to become a base commander, which it's very competitive to become a base commander. So I was a base commander at Ramstein. So I had the pedigree when I was at Ramstein. I was the base commander. I had my joint tour. I was uh, promoted early twice. Uh, but that, that was 10 of us, <laughs> right? So there was 10 of us mm. base commanders in Europe, and we were getting one a year promoted to general, and I had like a two-year window. So I, I knew that I was only really I had a 20% chance, even with all of that, all of those, that pedigree you call for making general. And, uh, but that's my second time around, I ended up getting promoted. Uh, out of there. So, but you got to be a base commander. It's very competitive becoming a wing commander, we call it, or base commander. And, uh, and you have to have that joint tour to get there. And almost anybody getting promoted to generals had to have been promoted twice early uh, to, to, to at least a colonel. So, the, um, when, what was your rank when you were running, when you were commander of Offit? Just to kind of get myself situated. Yeah. With, I was a brigadier general. So, it was my second base command. And, uh, and, 
Offutt is the biggest base of Air Combat Command, which is all the combat Air Force bases in the United States at the time. We had 23 bases, and it was the biggest. And so they, they made two or three of us one-stars of the biggest bases, and then senior colonels were the others. So I went from being the base commander at Ramstein as a colonel, and I was a deputy to a third Air Force a commander that oversaw all 10 bases. Then I came to Offutt as the commander. My name is Jeremy Aspen. This is Gwen Aspen. We are with Congressman slash General Don Bacon having a discussion about leadership on bootstrappers. And so I just want to ask about that, that process of moving people up. Do you think that the military has a good finger on the pulse on who's going to be a good leader? Because that, that's something that small businesses struggle with mm-hmm. is finding out who the right people are to promote to maybe that middle management realm. So could you just speak on some of the qualities that they're looking for and what kind of characteristics they're looking for and how they identify whether people have them or not? You know, the characteristics have changed over time. When I came in as a lieutenant, the military characteristics were very directive, screaming, the hard boss. Uh, But I never really fit that mode, frankly. I was more of the, I wanted to be the gentleman commander that could listen. I should be able to get feedback and not yell, right? And so I think over time, my style of command became the dominant style in the Air Force. It's more of a gentlemanly, doesn't mean you're weak. It just, oh, you don't no. have to smile. You look somebody nice, you got to do better, but you don't have to yell. And so the, the, it's, the style has changed over time. We're much more, you know, if you got that X and Y axis, we really try to get it in the middle now, right? And it used to be all X, if you're familiar with that term. Uh, you don't want all why because you can't just be nice, right? You're, you're leading people to combat. But you need to have a combo of both, the personnel skills and the ability to make hard decisions. But I think the Air Force does a good – we probably get it three-quarters right, four-fifths right. The problem is the Air Force early on promotes people for being technically the best. But if you're technically the best, it doesn't mean you're a, a good leader of people. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the challenge for the Air Force is mm-hmm. taking – a guy that's the best pilot as a captain or major, and then as a lieutenant colonel, now he's supervising two or 300 or she, right? And that's a different skill set. And that's where you have to, you have to figure out who's your best leaders to promote them next. And Yeah, we call that the Peter Pitt principle in the private mm-hmm. sector, where you elevate people to their highest level of incompetence. So right. it's always a struggle in the private well, yeah, sector. Yeah, like in the well. private sector, sales is the perfect <laughs> example because you might have the best salesman, but that is not the same thing as saying that that mm-hmm. person is going to be able to lead a team of 10 salesmen. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah. their day yeah. is just completely different. So I, yeah. I so what, so how, I don't know, what did you do as a general when you were trying to distinguish between the two and you're trying to discover what it, who deserved uh, to be right. moved up into leadership positions as opposed to maybe the technical area where they were. Uh, maybe they got a higher rank, but they didn't necessarily have mm-hmm. people under them. How do you know? Well, I think it's important to have good metrics. So I had lots of metrics I would look at. So job performance is ultimately the most important. So is this junior commander to me, is this commander excelling in the job performance areas? But that only tells you, part of, it doesn't tell you if they're a decent person, how they're treating their subordinates. And so you have to get out from behind your desk. I would walk. I would work maybe only two hours by my desk during the day. I would spend the other eight hours of the normal duty day walking around work areas, talking to people. I wanted, I wanted people on the flight line or the cops at the gates to feel comfortable talking to me so I could pick up what's going on. But, you know, and so you got to, I think you got to have your ear to the ground uh, with the with junior, in this case, airmen or in any organization, the junior folks, and they got to be able to trust you enough to talk. You just can't show up one day and say, hey, Tell me what's going on. You got to be a regular person and they got to know that you like them. So I think one of the keys to leadership is the most junior people in your organization got to know that you like them, that you respect them. That means eye contact, you know, uh, willing to shake their hand. I know in the COVID area, we can't do that as well, mm-hmm. but it's about a personal interaction that where it builds trust. And so that's how you hear what's going on. And you know, if the, if the intermediate command is working well or not. We are having a discussion today about leadership with General, it's Congressman slash General Don Bacon. And uh, we were just talking about leadership and what it takes to discover uh, what it is or, or to, to discover how to find the future leaders 
in, in this case, in the military. And let's see if we can apply that to some of our business tactics. And I actually wanted to take a step back to something that you said, Congressman. Uh, we were talking about leadership styles and you were saying the dominant one when you were starting out in the military was to be to yell at people and maybe it seemed like maybe a more cruel tactic and you a dictator a dictator okay and you right. had taken a softer <laughs> approach and I just wanted to ask you what was it at that time that gave you the strength to kind of shirk the typical leadership style mm -hmm. and and go with your your alternative style I felt this way early on. I remember talking to some senior leaders about it. I remember got, I got scoffed at a little bit about how to treat other people. And it's, you know, the mindset was, hey, let me tell you what to do. I am right. You're wrong. <laughs> that was the mindset back then. And I just didn't think it worked. So I, probably some of the things that shaped me was I, I am a Christian. I believe God blesses a little more humble uh, spirit. And I think people... I think you got to genuinely care for people and they need to know it. So I just think that that's a little bit of my spiritual roots of how you're supposed to treat other people. Really, it's the golden, you know, the, the gold rule type of leadership I think is very important. So that'd be one. Two, I worked on the farm my whole childhood until I was 21. And I really worked for my uncle. My dad was a businessman who lived on the farm, but my uncle farmed. And he was such a gentleman, nice guy. He was, he was the epitome of what a good boss should, should be like. He, he, he was a good mentor. I only heard him yell once or twice in 10 years. I mean, so he was just a really, he was self-controlled. And I thought that's sort of what I want to be like. On top of that, I'm a history guy. Dwight Eisenhower. People love that smile, mm -hmm. his, gentle, his kindness to junior uh, forces. Joe Grant was the same way. Joe Grant was known for being a good listener. Uh, and I love reading about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was not an order teller. He was a suggester, right? So he would do things more in a suggestive style leadership to, and have that give and take before they would settle on a, a forward plan. And so I think that those were my sort of my role models. And then in the military, I saw the guys who I thought were the best and I sort of used them as uh, someone to emulate. Uh, so it's, you know, it's an iterative process. You learn as you go. Uh, but my best, my favorite bosses in the end were folks who were the style that I thought should be. And uh, so, uh, and I thought they were effective. People like, going, you want people to like going to work mm -hmm. and, and getting their job done. When they feel like it's going to be, they're not looking forward to it. It's not fun. Uh, that's not what I want. I want people to have pride to come into work. I want to say, I am so excited to be in this organization because we're, I'm sorry for my language, but we're kicking ass and we got a great team. We're sucking to none. That's the, that's the mindset I want every team to have when, when, that I'm a part of. Is there, so with the military, especially everybody's got the chance of being court-martialed. I mean, you, they have an entirely different court system and that court system is consequential at a, to a higher degree than it is even in, I think this private sector, because you can do little things, uh, and end up being evicted or whatever you would call it in the military, uh, kicked out. So was there ever a time where you could use that leverage? Like, like you're bringing on people who are probably of, um, somewhat desperate, uh, childhoods, right? Or, or mm -hmm. not of the best circumstances, right? So they might not have been uh, reared with an expectation or, or, or an understanding of how things are supposed to work. Were you ever able to use that force of, of court martial and ultimate consequences to get kids into a better place where they can become uh, more successful? In the military? I would say I use I would say I use court martial for that. I use court martial to punish, uh, and it, normally bad offenders where you, ha you have to have justice done. But I would do lesser discipline. Uh, but there were a few folks, and I, and I commanded five times, so uh, probably twenty thousand or thirty thousand people under direct command. And then I, you know, I had administrative control over twenty five thousand. You know, when I retired, uh, but I went when I had the discipline authority for that. But I, there was a few folks that I gave a second chance to or a more minor discipline because I was trying to rehabilitate them. I saw hope. And I, frankly, many of them, I, I, a lot of them, like five or 10 years later, they'll, fi they'll call me and say, thank you. Cool. I just retired and you gave me a chance to retire. And I had a good service after our, our, our incident. And uh, so I've heard some good feedback, but I, I use court martial mainly to fix problems. So I went to Ramstein. We were the, as the new commander, we were the number one base for sexual assault 
and oh, wow. DUIs. And that's what I inherited. I remember my first week, the four-star general, I was Colonel says, hey, Don, what are you doing about this? I said, well, geez, I just took, I just took the flag. So can you give me a week or two to analyze it? Uh, but I used the court martial uh, fairly liberally to clean it up. And I ended up with a, one of the best sexual assault rates in the Air Force and DUI rates. But I made sure people knew, uh, I'm not, I'm, when you screw up, especially in the assault area, uh, there's going to be no mercy. I'm going to put so, you in front of a I'm going to put you in front of a jury. So we're going to hammer you. <laughs> this is this is Bootstrappers. I'm Jeremy Aspen. This is Gwen Aspen, and we're talking with Don Bacon about leadership, um, sexual assault. I think we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but um, you recently, I think it was back in February, had uh, participated in bringing um, Republicans and Democrats together on a case at Offit, where a woman whose name I don't have. Do you have it? Um, had been sexually assaulted. And it sounds like you're pushing through legislation uh, that is designed to take care of that. Um, so the leader, where I'm going out with the leadership angle is right now in Washington, D.C., everybody knows that it's very hard to get along even with the Republic, you know, Republicans or Democrats and vice versa. Um, how, how does that kind of leadership uh, work in Washington? Uh, how, right. how can you make that happen nowadays? Well, in this case, it takes someone from the minority party or the dissenting party on this policy to speak up and, and actually change opinions. So that's what we did here. So you know, my background here, as a five-time commander, I, and particularly at Ramstein, where I had the sexual assault issue, I didn't have those problems like that in the other four commands. But you learn that a lot, sometimes you have, say, an eight or say just a 19-year-old lady victim, uh, and she comes forward, but it's uh, two people, Two different stories and what you find is if you're not careful the lady who comes forward because she was underage drinking and if the, if the guy gets found innocent because they couldn't find the, uh, enough evidence the only person getting punished is the lady well that's not right because she was underage drinking and she's the one who came forward with the accusation to begin with and so i would never do that as a commander and say we're not going to do the the drinking crime for someone who comes forward that was assaulted right regardless of how the jury found in the end and so it's always my view that you shouldn't prosecute lesser crimes when somebody comes forward. Uh, and so you fast forward, I'm now on the Air Force Academy board. I'm on the board, uh, like the Board of Regents, they give it a oh, different cool. name for the Air Force Academy. And we've made that the policy at the Air Force Academy, right? And uh, so I liked it and the, the three-star there liked this policy and they, they so I supported it uh, as a board member because I said, hey, that worked for me. I know what you're doing. And so then we go to uh, the Armed Services Committee, and Jackie Spear, very liberal Democrat, uh, knows this is happening at the Academy. She puts in the bill, and the Republicans are attacking it because they think it's taking away prosecutor, prosecutorial power from the commanders. But I spoke up saying, no, this works. This is right. And uh, so really it takes someone to speak up on a party that's, uh, that's uh, fueling it. It could be Republican or Democrat. I spoke up saying, I think this is right, Bill. It works at the academy. I see it work in person. And that's how we were able to get it passed, you know, in a fairly bipartisan way. There was a few dissenters. Now we're going to get it out of the Senate as well. We'll get it, well, I think we'll make it law uh, this year. That's oh, cool. great. That's great. And it is brilliant. Like, it makes perfect sense. Well, and so that's kind of, we all think it makes perfect sense. But I'm sure you got a lot of pushback by certain people who wanted um, the status quo. So, can you speak to the moments where, I mean, real leadership is speaking up when everyone else is kind of against you or you have a new idea that no one's thought of? Mm -hmm. So, and of course, in the military, you have to be a little bit political about it. How do you discern which right. topics are worth really pushing forward yeah. despite the, uh, what most people want and which topics are just not worth the fight? So, you know, some commanders fall on their sword all the time. They don't go far. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you've got to pick and choose, <laughs> but you fall on your sword. So, there's a good commander I knew. He says, don't fall on your sword often, but when you do, don't miss. So, you got to pick and choose your battles, right? And uh, so, I think one of the first times where I really put myself on the line, I was a captain in a flying squadron, and a senior officer's, plural, we're having unprofessional relationships with the younger junior ranking women in the squadron and spouses. I did not like it. 
And this went on for about a year, and I'd go to the commander, and I'd talk, I'd say, there's a problem. He said, Don, it's just rumor, mind your own business. I was pretty sure it was not rumor, because one of my best friends got divorced. I knew the spouse was involved with one of these senior officers, and but I couldn't get my commander to take it serious. So I went over his head, two, two levels over the head, and went to uh, an office and said, this is what I'm seeing. I want an outside group to come in. I was not well-liked in that squadron by the command team at that point because I just called them out. But I gave them a year to fix it, and it never happened. So they bring in an outside investigator. They found three people, senior people, doing this, sort of cleaned it out. And then I got – Then they, they actually – that commander did not get promoted. And the base commander, who was a one-star, mind you, I am – he oh, came up with you are the most courageous guy in the squadron. I got rated number one of 280 captains in the wing. Uh, am I, stood am I, I stood up and I took a beating for six months in the squadron by the command. The rank and file liked me on it because they said it was right. So I've had a couple incidents like that. I haven't had it off often, but there's a few where I just, it got to the point where I could not stomach it. And I said, somebody's got to be here to take responsibility. So is I it? Did. If you could distill this value into something, would you say when it really affects the culture of the organization, when you feel like something is mm -hmm. a toxic element in the culture, because I'm bringing up this moment that you're talking about, and then also the DUIs and maybe mm -hmm. the ass assaults at the other command where you were um, in charge, is that where you decide this is something I'm, gonna, uh, yeah. I'm going to fall my, fall my sword over? I, on some things, you don't go over your boss's head if they're minor. If they're little things, or if I would say they're judgment, but they're not a right or wrong or legal, sometimes you support your boss, even if you maybe would do it differently, right? So it, if it's legal, it's, it's a judgment call, or if it's not that significant, I'm going to support my boss, right? But if it's something where it's hurting people, it's hurting the mm -hmm. mission, I think it's illegal, I'm going to – I feel like at some point – I was looking around and nobody was standing up and I said, you know, it's going to be, so it's going to follow somebody. It's going to follow me on this particular case. And uh, I'll never forget this guy came in and briefed the entire squadron, 365 people and said the most respected officer in the squadron is this captain Don Bacon. And mind you, I had majors, lieutenant colonels. It was because they did this. It was a clean out in the squadron. It was a, it was definitely a defining moment for one of my defining moments of standing out and just, and, you know, I could have, it could, I could have had two bosses. There was two lieutenant colonels. They would have, if it would have come out right, I could have been done right there. You I would have probably right. not been. I would have, I would not have retired even. I would have been kicked out uh, before, um, before I could even. I would, have, I would have been promoted before I met the time in retirement. So they would have booted me out. Oh, I got to delve down into a little bit more of that. This is uh, Bootstrappers. Mm -hmm. I'm Jeremy. This is Gwen. This is uh, Congressman Don Bacon. Uh, but we're talking to him as a general, because if you don't know Congressman Bacon, uh, he started off in this Omaha area as a brigadier general at the uh, at Offutt Air Force Base. And He's actually a lieutenant here and a major here, too. Oh, you came oh, to, wow. you, had two, you had three states? Three assignments, yes. I oh, had no a total kidding. of about 10 years uh, in the Air Force here. And that's why you're back. Because <laughs> right. it's Omaha. 10 years is a lot. <laughs> that's, that's actually, yeah, I mean, Omaha is a good place to be, especially if you're a uh, Congressman, uh, former general of the military. Um, I was a farm boy, so we liked Ohio. I was a Midwesterner. Yeah. I fit right in. Perfect fit. Um, so we're talking about leadership, and we were just talking about you, uh, it, you know, an instance that you had uh, in the past where you, you had to make a tough decision that was actually career risking. Um, and then while we were taking a little bit of a uh, break, you brought up another one, I, and it's just so. Could, would you mind actually going through that other instance where you risked your career? So these are, and I have probably four or five like this total. Uh, but you know, these are things that leaders have to do, whether they're running a factory or running a business. So these are common common issues. But I was a new commander at Ramstein, and our officers club was losing a hundred thousand uh, dollars. But a year before, they were making a hundred thousand dollars, right? And so I was looking at. They brought in a new manager. They went from 100,000 to minus 100,000 in a year. And I, I, I'd go walk around the club, I was the commander, and I could see it wasn't being well-led. I'd go to big parties, there'd be one bartender, you got 30 people in line. So I'd go back there, do it myself, and tell the, tell the, hey, the manager, you know, uh, this shouldn't be, why am I doing this? You should be back here doing this. So finally, at the point, I said, I'm going to have to let him go and hire someone else. 
But what I did know too is the there's a two-star general that brought him in from a higher headquarters, and so I I started to work to get him removed. This officers club manager, and I had a, a replacement in mind. And this two-star general calls me one day says, "Don, uh, this guy's going to charge you for age discrimination, and I'm going to support it because he's the best club manager I've ever had. He's worked with me like four assignments. He's go he goes wherever I go, <laughs> right? So he was his guy. Good and boy. I said he says, "I'm going to call you back tomorrow." And I'm going to see if you've changed your mind. But what he didn't know is I, actually hired, I, I had hired an older guy, older than the guy we had. So it was he didn't oh. know he didn't know that. So that was in my little cranium. Yeah. Um, but he called me back the next day. I go, hey, uh, General, I was a colonel uh, at the time. I go, General, uh, you know, we know that he came in from he was part of your staff for the previous assignment. You brought him in. Uh, we know that you, you've had two or three tours with him. He's hired because of you. And now you're resisting. So we're going to have this investigation. I, I don't think I'll be the center of it. You will be. Ooh. And he goes, Ooh. then he goes, Don, I, my call sign was Bits. Bits, I'm going to call you back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so he called me back. He called me back the next day. says, Don, I think you're right. <laughs> really? Yes. But and I that was sometimes it. you got to look a guy in the eye. I was over the phone, but in a sense saying, really, you're the issue general on this, not me. So was there uh, some bad dealings going on? Where that was someone stealing the money? No, it was just, just poor a guy. He liked to shake hands when people came in the door, but didn't have he didn't have the discipline to have, make sure that the people were staffed at the right levels for big parties. Didn't have all the logistics training for having the right supplies. A lot, a lot of making money in the clubs is buying stuff at a good price and having a good mm-hmm. supply. So if you're buying high, yeah, you ain't gonna make a lot of money. So he didn't really have that background. Uh, he was good at greeting people, but that's the the small right. part of the job. Well, that kind of brings me to a new subject that I, I was curious about. Um, what we really struggle with in small, medium-sized companies is dealing with uneven performers. So somebody mm-hmm. may be super good in one area and really struggle in another. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that they are wonderful with clients, um, but they struggle in their personal life and it affects their performance or they're cruel, um, but mm-hmm. they're a go-getter and get things done and meet all their key performance indicators. Uh, how did you handle and coach uneven performers to make them better? Now, the Air Force requires you give feedback at least once a year and in some phases in their development twice a year. And it's hard to give feedback that's harsh, but if you practice, you get better at it. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. So I would always try to start off, hey, this is what you do well. And this is where I think you need improvement. And I think you got to have that conversation. These are two or three areas I think are going to hurt your career if you don't, if you don't fix. Now, a lot of them don't necessarily believe it, but if they hear that a couple of times, maybe it's okay. There is truth to it. Now, a a smart person does listen and takes that feedback. You know, it's right out of Proverbs, uh, taking counsel. So... But the, the supervisor or the leader has to have the courage, uh, more moral courage, to look somebody in the eye and just say, here's what you're doing great. <clears throat> Here is what, you, what depends on what level of degree, but here's what's going to hurt you professionally. And I think you also got to let someone know, you know, I got two openings coming up. I don't think you're going to be in that spot because of these problems unless you fix it. People got to know this stuff early. What I don't really care for is bosses who spring this on people. Mm. At the end, they think they're going to get this job or that job. My job is I'm going to let someone know a year or two in a year in advance. This is where you're headed. Mm-hmm. But when I get when someone gets promoted or gets a job where they don't, I don't want it to be a big surprise. I think I've already given them the expectation that you're doing things right or you're not. Yeah, uh, I think I a su- lot of a lot of people confuse, and we were, you were talking about it mm-hmm. earlier, kindness with being a, you know, being likable with being a good manager. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's actually cruelty to be too kind because yeah. whenever, if somebody gets shocked with the end result of their career, mm-hmm. then that is actually cruelty. It's not right. kindness. And so, and I, I think people tend to maybe not discuss the hard things because of their own ego. They want to be liked. And so mm-hmm. maybe leaders have to think, okay, is this about me or is this about them? And giving people well, hard criticism, it's more about that that's how you're helping them, even if they don't right. like you. I think everybody has two missions. I don't care what organization you're in. It's the mission, whatever your mission of that organization, deliver a profit, 
or putting bombs on target. The other thing is mentoring other people. So I think we got to get the mission done and you got to get met. And then we have to have a mentoring role. And you're absolutely right. It's not kind to surprise someone when you know ahead of time that there's things that they could fix. It's not right. The right thing is to be honest, but I think it would be honest kindly. You can be kind in your feedback at how you do it. This is I try to do it out of luck. I don't want to do it out of meanness. Right. Absolutely. This is Bootstrappers. Uh, I'm Gwen Aspen here with my spouse, Jeremy Aspen. We're the hosts, and we're here with uh, Brigadier General Don Bacon, who also is the congressman of District 2 in Nebraska. And I just had a question uh, that was circulating in my mind, because I imagine that the people on the ground in the military are uh, people who are really good, and maybe this isn't Air Force, I don't really know a lot about military, but those people that are like good with bombs and good with things right on the ground that you might get some Dennis Rodman types in there. Is it true? Do they make it in the military or is there too much structure that you can't get like a Dennis Rodman type that you can have a, you can have an eccentric, but they normally don't make Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, They may, they may, you know, they may still be flying that aircraft um, I do think we could have a little more eccentrics in the military. I think particularly in thinking, new ways of thinking. Uh, so the Air Force tends to have a one-size-fits-all sort of, uh, but we need uh, thinkers out there that could conceptualize differently. I don't know if the military uh, perpetuates that too well. Uh, but generally, uh, the, yeah, the, and I love, by the way, I love Rodman. I, I love the Chicago Bulls <laughs> in the 90s. So uh, the, he, what made him so good is he had Jordan and Pippen there too, right? Uh, yeah. But most most Rodmans won't won't get promoted far in the military. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and that's a struggle for small business people too. Mm-hmm. You you have to decide: is this person so good, or are their problem are their flaws uh, make them mm-hmm. too toxic? And so, it's always and, a struggle. And so it's not like they are not good at their job or anything, right? I mean, you, so you could be in the military and you mm-hmm. could have a decent career, but you might not make the next level. Uh, but in the military, you don't get stuck either, do you? I mean, if you don't make it to the next level, are you just kind of asked not to stick around? Yeah, if you don't make a certain rank by 20 or a 20, if you're a certain rank, they're going to ask you to leave. So there are some up and out rules. So I think you know, a Rodman type may not, he may be good at rebounding, he may not be the best team captain or mm. coach. And so I think we need good rebounders, uh, but I may not be able to make that guy a squadron commander or group commander. So what I would do is as a maybe a senior commander, I may want a Rodman on my staff who helps me think out of the box. Because mm. I do think there's some need for unique out-of-the-box thinking anywhere you're at. Uh, but that person may not be the best commander of 300, let alone 1,000 or 2,000, right? So... But this is an interesting point that I think small businesses go through. Like when someone taps out, do you fire them or do you just keep paying them more money? Because some, at some mm-hmm. point you keep giving them raises every year and then you can't, I mean, for that role, you just can't pay them more. So in the military, mm-hmm. the correlation would be that you retire them if they're not going to move up. You know, so if you're a major and you're 20, you're going to be asked to retire at 20. A lieutenant colonel, they, they have you go until 26 or 24. The rules change. And their colonels can go till 30. Um, so, there's, so there is an up or out structure uh, there. And I think it, it's good because it helps create a churn of new people mm-hmm. coming in and, fill, and filling those spots. Well, I just want to switch gears here and talk about your time at the National War College because stra- the strategy, well, right now a lot of business people are trying to make huge decisions about their business without knowing what's going to happen in the future. And I'm sure that's what you all do at the War College, right? It's all about decision-making when you have imperfect information or limited information. What are some of the strategies that you think are really useful in that situation? What I learned primarily at the National War College was what is your end state goal? That's, you got to start with that. Where do you want to go? What's your end state goal? And normally, I'm thinking this more in military planning operations. So, uh, but I think there's some crossover to the business Absolutely. side. Absolutely, I definitely right. think there's crossover. Right. So then you got your end state goal. Then you got to think, okay, what are your means to get there? What are the what do you, what are the tools that you have to achieve those that end state? And then you got to figure out. And then there's what's called ways. How are you going to use them? There's different ways to use things. So we call it ends, ways, and means. Right. And that's 
So that's sort of the simple model of strategy. What's your end state? What's your means to get uh, there and how, and how are you going to use them? But then I had the guy that wrote the book on national strategies. Got, his name was Diable, Terry Diable. He was my prof professor. And so that's the simple form. But then you got to think there's two other things that you got to think about. What are your assumptions? That's where we get mm -hmm. killed. A lot of times there's assumptions that you don't even know you have that define what you do. And, they, and the military can kill you. Bad assumptions kill. And you have to really challenge what are your assumptions. There's things that we, I'll give you an example. And leading up to World War II, we knew that we could defeat Japan over a certain amount of time. And we knew Japan knew that. So we knew they wouldn't attack us. It was an assumption because over time we're going to win. So they will never attack us. But yet, that's not how Japan thought. That assumption was faulty, right? They also assumed you couldn't use torpedoes in shallow water. water, And they could because they developed a wooden fins on the torpedoes that kept, that kept them higher up. And so I would just say assumptions can kill you. So I think in business too, you I think, what are your assumptions that could be faulty? And mm -hmm. there's another one too. It's contextual. What is the contextual information that – and for, for maybe, okay, for politics, it may be what's the polling or what, what's the, uh, what, do, what kind of majority or minority do you have in the House? There's other, there's facts out there that define how good your strategy is going to work. And you got to shape your strategy on the, those contextual facts. This is Bootstrappers. I'm Jeremy. This is Gwen. We're both Aspens. We're here <laughs> with Congressman Don Bacon talking about strategy. Well, I was just so, I'm so interested in what you just said about strategy and how the assumptions can kill you. Um, because uh, this is something in any, any big decision people are making, generally all the evidence that they are noticing are the ones that back up their original idea or what they hope the outcome to be. And that's where people make big mistakes. So uh, what measures did you learn to back out your biases to make a good decision in the military? You know, typically as a new commander, I would listen for a couple of weeks, a lot of listening, getting around, maybe longer. Uh, depends how well I knew the unit ahead of time. And then you start formulating a strategy for your next two years. But you want to think, okay, after I leave, you still want to have a roadmap for where the wing's going afterwards. But after I sort of listened a lot and heard what other people's priorities were, were I come in and I talk to a whole big groups of people. I say, I think this is what we need to be doing. I think these are our goals. But I wanted to get pushback because I think that you want people to feel free to say, I, I always felt like early on I could come up with an 80% vector and then I needed these experts to get me from 80 to 100. And so I really wanted to be challenged on a strategy or a plan. Um, and so I had a very open, open ability in my, as a commander to, I wanted people to give me feedback but I just didn't say, what do you guys want to do? I mean, I'd go around, but then I would develop a plan, a rough plan. I put it on the table and say, shoot holes at it. How do we make it better? And I think that's how you got to have a lot of people. You need people willing to talk to you to break open assumptions that are wrong. Did they, train you? Did they train you on assumptions and, and questioning your original well, assumptions at the war college? Yeah, we talk about it. You talk about bad assumptions kill. So I think as a good commander, you're always, you need to have, you know, you got to realize it's a factor of life. We all walk around assumptions. The scary thing is we don't even know their assumptions. Right. We just think we don't even know their assumptions. We just think it's fact of life, right? right. Because you don't even know it. So you need someone to puncture that if it's a problem and you, and you do it because people feel comfortable coming to you and saying, Hey, there's a, we've got a problem here. Right. Well, I think that really comes down to knowing yourself really well, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you, do you feel like knowing who you are and what you're naturally going to tend towards mm -hmm. helps you make better decisions? You know, I'm very comfortable coming up with a rough game plan and putting it on the table and saying, okay, guys and gals, how do we do this better? Uh, this is where I think we need to go. I think it's 80%, 70%. I need you all to make it better. And that's generally how I try to do things in the military. It's just my style. Uh, I didn't really care for commanders who had no plan and said, give me a plan, right? I wanted to shoot a rough, you know, in the Air Force, when I'm flying an airplane, and I know you, you're, you know you got to get over 200 miles over here. Often I shoot the, right, the rough vector up front and get as close. And then I sort of fine tune it, right, to get it. Okay, it's not, two, it's not two zero zero. It's really one nine zero. 
that I correct it, <laughs> right? I think leadership's often like that for me. I, I try to shoot out a rough vector and then you, then you sort of correct it as you go and make it better. I'm so glad you brought up being a pilot because it gives me a chance to tell people I'm a pilot <laughs> or about, about having your wings, I should say, right? Because um, uh, you were a, an engineer, flight engineer. I was an electronic warfare guy in the oh, back. Yeah. I, I was a jammer. I jammed radars and did signals intelligence. So I, I got to get down to this thing because we run into a problem pretty often where some of our employees, especially when they're not in the same country, um, might be submissive or they might not feel comfortable mm -hmm. bringing something up to, like in our case, the presidents of the company. Mm -hmm. And I do think what we miss when we run into that, if they don't have, if, if the environment isn't such that it really makes them almost uh, divulge what they're thinking, then, then we're missing some opportunities. Mm -hmm. What does the military have or what did mm -hmm. you do that would have made it so that they felt good, that they felt like they could or should or needed to bring up things, even though they might not be that kind of personality? You know, a lot of cultures, uh, we are very, and there's formal words for the U.S. culture versus culture, say, in Asia, where it's more, much more formal, yes. but they're, right. they're not, you need to meet them like five or six times before they can get to, whereas Americans, we're like within 10 minutes, <coughs> hey, let's make a deal, right? So, yeah. we're, it's a, so we're just different. So you got to probably, you have to understand the cultural uh, differences when you're working uh, that way. But Ultimately, I think most, most uh, employees want to know that they're respected and that they're valued. And you, and you do it by, I really think, okay, you can't do it if you're doing long distance, but I really think a lot of it's about eye contact, asking a question and really listening. And you want to let them know you care. And you, gotta, you can't just say it. You got to do it, right? Yeah. But, yes. and, when, and when people know it, I think, you, and you can encourage them, uh, I need to know, how do you feel about this? What, what do we, I, I think you got to ask. Uh, so there's, there's different ways to do this as a boss. You can go out to 200 people and say, I want you all to write down and no, no name on paper. What's the one thing you like of this unit? What's the one thing you don't like? And you'll get, collect them up and you'll get anonymous things. That's, a, that's just one way of many to get feedback. But we got to be, bosses have to be feedback machines and you got to have different ways to do it. Don't be the a guy or gal that says, how am I doing? Am I doing all right? No, you know, they don't, people don't really care for that all the time, but there's different ways to go about uh, getting feedback. And I think that's how we get better. Feedback mm -hmm. makes us better. So I know we're running out of time here. Um, and by the way, before I forget, thank you very much for, for the time you've taken with us. But um, so you, when was it, like, do you know when it is that you identified yourself as a leader? And like, did you have that imposter syndrome? Because I do think like we all start off, you know, at birth and, and we all are a certain way. And at some point you we become leaders. Do you know what, when that was? And do you remember when you felt comfortable with it? I don't know if I've ever totally felt comfortable. I always mm. feel challenged by okay. it. Right. And in a good way, I love the opportunity to lead. I love being a five-time commander favorite. The things I'll relish is the, when I'm on my deathbed and hopefully it's a long time from now was leading a flying squadron in combat and doing, doing well. So I think, when I was a flight commander of 45 people as a captain, I feel like that was when I was identified as being, having the best flight in our unit. And I knew how to track. I had metrics. I knew morale was high. I knew people liked being in my flight. So I knew I had something rough there that I could work with and, and build on down the road. And I got to command two squadrons, one in combat. And I got to test out my theory of leadership of, do, shooting out the rough vector, treating people with respect. I delegated a lot. I was, I, I knew 20, I could do 20 things at once because I delegated 20 things, right? A lot of bosses have a hard time doing, they're doing one or two things, they're doing it all. Yeah, so I was, a, I delegated out to leaders in the squadron and I watched and I was able to propel the squadron forward uh, in that way. So I think I, I tested out my theory and I think it worked and then I tried to make it better with each command. Well, really quick question. I just want to ask you, um, when you delegated out, was it, did you feel comfortable with that because you had good KPIs, key performance indicators mm -hmm. that would let you know whether it was going well or not? Now I find people I trust that work for, I say, this is your job. I need a new welcoming program for the squadron, 365. We don't have a welcoming program. Why don't you build me one? You, we, we are up behind on all of our personal evaluations. I want to go through all 365 people, find out how late they are, come up with an order, let's get them done. So I just would 
go out and we had to get a squadron out of Afghanistan and six months later bring it back to Iraq in 2003. So I dealt, I had 20 things I knew I had to get done. And it, once or maybe every other day, I'd meet with all of them and we'd track where we're going. And, was, and, and plus it was a team at that point. We're all going through all these things. It was trying to get our, our chess pieces on the board in the right spot to deploy a squadron back into Iraq for the invasion, right? And so I don't know if I had KPIs, but it's clear guidance. Hey, this is what I need you to do. So this is what we want to goal. This is the in-state goal that you got to provide. Problem is, a lot of these things you delegate, they conflict with other people's goals. Yeah. You got to get training done, but plus you got to do this. And sometimes you can't do both. So mm. that's when you got to, that's when the sausage making occurs. When you get everybody together, you got to give and take and compromise. And, and in the end, you get through the, uh, the finish tape as one team. So uh, I have a question about what your favorite books are. Because I know you're a, mm -hmm. a historian of history. So do you have any books that you would recommend to entrepreneurs or business people? All of my favorite books were centered around Lincoln and Churchill, Grant. Uh, but I, I think my favorite history book was Hamilton by Chernow. Uh, Chernow's really? book on Hamilton. And then to read the play, the play mimicked or mirrored the book perfectly. I loved it, uh, frankly. You know, my favorite leadership books is Lincoln on Leadership. It really is sort of my style, suggest, uh, suggesting kinds of uh, orders, if you will. Uh, Giuliani on Leadership, I know Giuliani's got a different reputation right now, but he wrote a book after being a mayor, and he talked about the 21 things or so that helped him be an effective mayor. I thought that was really good. Uh, there's also a, a, a book called Good to Great, I love yeah, it. I love Good to Great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a great book. I love the, you know, who, do you, who are you going to put in the bus? And uh, the, the, the best leaders are the humble leaders. I like mm -hmm. that because it speaks to my assumption. I, I think that's great. And I'll tell you what, this is a conversation with a person I could have, uh, that I could just have go on and on and on. Unfortunately, uh, we have one hour on the show. <laughs> and so we're cutting it. But um, uh, General Bacon, Congressman Bacon, really do appreciate you coming in and just kind of spilling your mind and talking about all of your uh, successes, uh, your the tricks um, that you uh, that you you learned in the coming up through the military, took. the risks that you took. Just a super fun conversation. So um, uh, thanks again. And this is Bootstrappers. I'm Jeremy. This is Gwen. We'll be back next week. This has been Bootstrappers a unique presentation designed to help you better understand what makes the world turn. Contact Gwen or Jeremy Aspen at hosts at bootstrapper.club. Join us next time on News Talk 1290 KOIL at our website or download the podcast.